Kirby. Mark Morgan is keeping America safe. The magical Dana Daniels performs. And Debbie Campbell-Jones joins us. That's Ray Corley in the Music City Connection. And I'm your announcer, Keith Wilbury. And Welcome, everybody. We are so happy to have you here. Thrilled to have this wonderful audience here in our theater, just outside of Nashville in Hendersonville, Tennessee. And we hope if you're getting out at all, I can't think of a better place to get out and to uh, sort of challenge at least the opportunity to not touch people, but be with a few folks in our theater where we keep it safe. I mean, we hose everybody down with alcohol before they walk in the door. And we make them wear not just a mask, they have to wear a paper bag over their heads. We're trying to get Keith and Trey to wear paper bags over their head, not to keep them safe, just so we don't have to look at them. We're working on that. Thanks, thanks. Yeah. I resemble that remark. <laughs> My wife wants me to have one of those as well. Yeah, she was the one who suggested it, by Thanks. the way, Trey. <laughs> hey, you know, on this show, I have not hidden my contempt for what masquerades as journalism in our country today. There are very few true reporters, very few true journalists. But there are legions of highly partisan, biased, and utterly dishonest hacks who serve up very pointed political patter instead of the truth. Hey, but don't take my word for it. Gallup and the Knight Foundation just released a massive poll on Americans' views of the media. It was a survey of more than 20,000 adults, and it found that pessimism about the news media delivering factual, nonpartisan, uh, just decent information was a staggering 86% of Americans seeing at least a significant amount of bias in the media, 86%. 49% see a great deal of it, and 73% say there's too much bias in the reporting of news stories that are supposed to be objective. Now, Barry Weiss is a former opinion editor at the New York Times, who abruptly resigned a couple of weeks ago with these parting words. I quote, a new consensus has emerged in the press, but perhaps especially at this paper, that truth isn't a process of collective discovery, but an orthodoxy already known to an enlightened few whose job is to inform everyone else. She goes on, she says, Twitter is not on the masthead of the New York Times, but Twitter has become its ultimate editor. Stories are chosen and told in a way to satisfy the narrowest of audiences rather than allowing a curious public to read about the world and draw their own conclusions. I end quote. Now, her entire exit letter was a stinging rebuke to the elitist snobs who run the New York Times. But as a parent, they don't care. They live in their own version of La La Land. And then just this week, Ariana Peccary said she had all she could take at MSNBC, saying, and I quote her, 
July 24th was my last day at MSNBC. I don't know what I'm going to do next exactly, but I simply couldn't stay there anymore. My colleagues are very smart people with good intentions. The problem is the job itself. It forces skilled journalists to make bad decisions on a daily basis. Now, then she quoted an anonymous, successful, and insightful TV veteran who said, quote, we are a cancer and there is no cure, but if you could find a cure, it would change the world, end quote. Now, remember, remember that is from someone who worked inside the belly of the beast at MSNBC, where there's not even a pretense of objectivity, fairness, or balance. And then there's the curious case of April Ryan, who actually has White House press credentials and who pretends to be a reporter, but who just this week crossed a line that historically precluded real reporters from being so blatantly biased. While flapping her jaws on CNN, she talked about, with joy, her dream of a Joe Biden inaugural day and said this about President Trump, quote, if Joe Biden is now going to be the 46th president of the United States, it will be him being inaugurated and watching police and armed forces trying to pull Trump out of the White House. I cannot wait for that split screen. Well, I think the person who ought to be pulled forcibly out of the White House is April Ryan. That's who I think. After all, her hateful and bitter resentment of President Trump and those around him was so intense and personal that she once stepped over a really big line. She questioned whether my daughter, the former press secretary to President Trump, had actually baked a pecan pie for Thanksgiving. <laughs> April Ryan clearly was ignorant of how uncouth it is to ever question a Southern lady as to whether she made her own pie. You don't do that. No. No, where I come from and where my daughter was raised, that's just not done by civilized people. Questioning the origin of a homemade pie is like questioning the legitimacy of a person's birth. <laughs> but even as Ms. Ryan made this outrageous statement, not a single soul on CNN challenged her in her blatantly biased broadside. Now, these are just some examples in the past few days that reveal that the information fed to you by the mainstream media is unreliable. And it worries me for more than the outcome of the election. It worries me for the very existence of our country. But these revelations come with a warning that journalism as we once knew it has died. And it's been replaced with a kind of zombie reporting that's more the work of demolition to truth than gathering information for a free people so they can make up their own minds. Well, as violence and anarchy continues to flourish in the city of Portland, or as I now call it, Portloon, leftist local officials blame everyone but the rioters. In fact, they blame law enforcement who are trying to put an end to it. My first guest tonight runs a federal agency whose mission in part is to do just that. And he says his officers aren't going anywhere until Portland is under control. 
Here's my conversation with Mark Morgan, who heads up U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Mark, we've seen these uh, incredible moments out of places like Portland. You and other federal officers are trying to protect federal facilities. List for us some of the challenges that you're facing in places like that. Well, I, I tell you, for, first of all, Governor, it's just the incredible false narratives that are out there. The, the misinformation, and quite frankly, look, I've been doing this for a long time, and, and I hate to say this, but it's just the truth. The lies that are being told, and, and by our political leaders, I, I really believe that they're putting politics above public safety. They're out there, they're vilifying the federal law enforcement officers that are out there. They're lying about why they're there and what they're doing, and that's extremely frustrating, Governor. You know, this week, the mayor of Portland finally decided that maybe these weren't so peaceful uh, a protester after all because they were trying to burn down a police station, blocking the exits while police officers were inside. Mark, that's attempted murder of law enforcement officers. What is going on? It, it is, and the, the irony to that is is the, the mayor, I, I've been half joking that that well, the, the one good thing is he's been watching in, in my Twitter account because what he's been saying about what's happening at the local police department precinct, you know, I, I've been saying that for weeks, that these same criminals, these same thugs and anarchists have been doing it at the federal facility, trying to burn down the courthouse, the seat of American justice. Why federal law enforcement officers were inside? The mayor said nothing there. The mayor actually blamed the federal law enforcement then. But now that the, the tide has shifted and the criminals is focused on his local police department, now he's shifting. It, it's really incredulous. But I believe the American people are seeing right, right through that. There's a side of the Customs and Border Protection Agency that a lot of Americans never hear about. Media will never tell them. Uh, it's not just that you guys arrest people, but you guys help people on that border. You help sometimes people, uh, kids and others who are medically distressed. I want you to talk about that role that uh, the Customs and Border Protection Agency do, because there's a real human side to what you guys are out there doing. Governor, I, I tell you what, th thank you. I mean this uh, uh, with all the sincerity. Thank you for asking that question because you're right. That story doesn't get told enough. Right now, this year, the fiscal year 20, we've rescued almost 4,000 individuals, 4,000. We have agents and officers risking their lives every single day. When they see somebody in distress, they, they don't ask them, are you trying to illegally enter? They don't ask them where they're from. They see a human being in distress, and they're risking their lives every single day to help that, 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 that human being. And I, I could list countless stories. I, I'll give you one just a couple of days ago, a tractor trailer full of, 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 of like over 30 illegal aliens that were in that tractor trailer. Inside, locked in, it's over 100 degrees inside mm. there, no food, no water, no medical attention, and you have Border Patrol agents that are there rescuing them and saving lives every single day. Mm. I was on the border a few years ago and, and spent a day with some of the, the agents of the agency. I, I was so impressed with their professionalism, with their sense of patriotism, their sense of duty and honor. And, and they, they had an impossible job, but they weren't complaining about it. They were proud to be serving the United States of America. And I know you're proud of those agents that you have, not just uh, there, but across the country, uh, whether it's in airports and uh, ports of entry. But uh, just talk about the scope of the work that your agents do. Everybody understands they're at the southern border, 
But that's not the only place where Customs and Border Protection work. I often get asked, you know, what's the toughest part of your job? And I say it's the, it's the absolute, the, the depth, the breadth, and magnitude and scope of what we do every single day. You're right. We're at the seaports. We're at the land ports. We're at the in-between the ports, you know, thousands of miles of border we're protecting. We're at every single airport making sure that, that people coming in are, 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 are not trying to do harm to this country. We're looking at counterfeit materials. We're on the front lines of counterterrorism. Uh, we, we, we are absolutely on the front lines of facilitating travel, which really is about our economic prosperity. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And, and you're right. I'm absolutely proud of every man and woman in this organization. It's tremendous the work they do to protect this country and facilitate economic growth every single day. And Mark, your folks have been stretched a little bit because I know that many of them have been called in to help supplement um, the other agencies protecting federal facilities like we talked about earlier in Portland, Seattle. I, I mean, some of these agents uh, are getting physically injured. Their, their lives are at risk because of the so-called peaceful protesters. We've been strong and steady from the beginning. Peaceful protesters, their God-given constitutional right to peaceful protest, we are 100% behind that. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the criminals, the thugs, and anarchists that have hijacked the protest and their message every single night in Portland, for example. We've had over 250 separate incidents of injuries of federal agents and officers up there, some of them very seriously. There's a couple right now that the physicians, they're not sure that they're going to actually regain full eyesight from these criminals assaulting them. It's, it's horrendous. And you know what? It's not just about what we're doing in Portland. Right now in hurricane season, that's another mission that CBP has, to go to these uh, areas that, that have been hit hard by hurricane and help humanitarian aspects as, as that as well. We're, we're all over the place. Mark, thank you for what you do. We're so happy to have you here. And I hope you can convey to your agents that the overwhelming majority of American citizens appreciate what you and your law enforcement agency does for the rest of us. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, sir. Now you can follow Mark Morgan at CBP Mark Morgan and visit CBP.gov to learn more about how this agency is working to keep Americans safe and secure in our borders. Now, if you'd like more of my take on the news, join me for Facts of the Matter on Huckabee.tv. This week, we're going to be talking about nervous never-Trumpers, policemen passing on the Democratic National Convention, and rioters suing the government to buy them riot gear. Be sure to go to Huckabee.tv after the show. Now, our official show commissioner, Keith Bilbrey, has the rest of our lineup tonight. Oh, yes, thank you for this position. Guilty as charged, Mike. Tonight, the comedic magic of Dana Daniels and Huck's hero, Barb Mays. Later, I am second campaign, and Debbie Campbell honors her father here on Huckabee. Well, my next guest is open for stars like Ray Romano and Randy Travis, and he's appeared on America's Got Talent. I want you to welcome the award-winning comedic magician, Mr. Dana Daniels. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, hey, to get things started, I'm going to need a volunteer. Understand that we had someone 
pick to come and help me out with yeah. Trey. Let's give Trey a nice round of applause. All right, Trey and uh, I guess come up here. We'll do the uh, social distancing thing, and you got the. For well, some you're reason, really far I feel away. Like I'm okay. Going to the Is that six feet? Yeah. <laughs> Ready. All right. Now, Trey, what, have you had your mind read before? My wife thinks I have. You think so? Well, it's going to happen tonight, but not by me. I brought along a little friend of mine that's going to accomplish this right here. His name is uh, uh, Trey. <laughs> <laughs> so we don't get confused. You'll be Trey, and you'll okay. be Trey too. Okay. Now, Trey brought along a little, uh, couple of magazines for this experiment. All right, here, I'm gonna put Trey back in his little condo. Well, not his yet. One more balloon payment. <laughs> they get worse. Okay, we have a couple of cooking magazines I stole from my wife. We have uh, uh, Eating Well and uh, Bon Appetit. So which one would you like to use? Your decision. Mm, I'm gonna go with the other one there. The, what is that, the Eating, eating Well? well? Go eating okay, Well. Okay, so c'est la vie, Bon Appetit, okay. So, and now we need to remove a page from here, the one that doesn't have a lot of ads and photos. Uh, we need one that has a lot of text on it. That's pretty good. Is that okay with you? That's, that looks great. All right, now I'm going to uh, safely remove it, get most of the page on it. Oh, it's pretty good. Go ahead. Oh, you have the gloves on. Great. Take that page. I want you to rip it in half. Rip so it you in have half. about a half a page in each hand. All right, great. Now you can make a decision. You're going to keep uh, the right or the left. Which one you want to keep? I'm gonna go with the left. Okay, now why don't you just drop that one? No, wait, you know I gotta what? go with just the right. Drop it. Sorry. Great. Rip that yeah. one in half. I'll rip this one in half. Uh huh. Good. And uh, okay. pick one to keep, one to throw away. Okay. You got it? All right, I got it. Good. All right, now pick a side, preferably one that has a lot of words. I want you to read through the article, select a word, keep it to yourself, okay? To make it more challenging for tray two, I want you to uh, make it a big word. And I say big word, Six or more letters would be ideal. Okay. okay. Are there a lot of big words to pick from? There are. And have you selected one? Yes. You're not changing your mind. No. Only you know what the word is. And soon, we'll Trey. Now, to get things started, Trey is going to produce the first letter of the word you're thinking of right now. To do that, we're going to place them in a hypnotic trance. Watch my finger, Trey. Watch my, excuse me. Watch my finger tray. <laughs> and sleep. Okay, he's now in a deep. Deep. Really? I just. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> years and years of studying sleight of hand, and this gets the biggest reaction. All right. <laughs> Waste well, of time. All right. Now, I just noticed that the eyes and the mouth are in the shape of the letter I. Does your word begin with the letter I? No. No, of course not. We just wanted to eliminate that as a possibility. <laughs> <laughs> Let's take a look over here. Ah, perhaps the, uh, perhaps right here. Was it a C? No. No, uh, maybe a U? No. Uh, an O? No. <laughs> I got an idea. Here we go. Was that T? No. I meant K. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> was it D? P? B? It was a Q? Q. It was a yeah. Q! Yes. It was a Q. Well, now he nailed the first letter with no problem <laughs> and had a mild stroke. <laughs> You're probably wondering, does he know the whole word? In fact, he's been thinking about it all evening. Listen. 
Look at that. That's his brain. <laughs> and if you could read his mind, you actually be able to read the word you're thinking of. To do that, I brought along the most dangerous weapon for a balloon, push pins. Now they've all been sterilized. You have gloves on. Go ahead and pick your push pin. Okay. You got it? Great. And all you got to do is uh, sneak up on tray two, explode his head, <laughs> grab his brains. <laughs> now? <laughs> Whatever. Whoa! Okay. Well, he went everywhere. Now you look there. You see the brains have fallen on the I floor. I do. Go see ahead. The brains. I don't want to touch them. Pick them up. Great. Don't open it just yet. Okay. Now you had your free selection. Pick one of two magazines. You got a page out of that magazine. You rip it in half. You decided what size you want. What size you wanted. What halves you wanted. What word you wanted. What was the word you were thinking of? Quarterback. Quarterback. <laughs> one word, but yet two. <laughs> And a bit shocking that it's an Eating Well magazine. <laughs> I, I couldn't believe it I myself. Was, yes. <laughs> that was inside the balloon even before you selected a magazine. Would you be amazed if I said quarterback? I would be amazed. So would I. <laughs> Go ahead, unfold it, read it out loud. What does it say? Put that anywhere. Yes. And what does it say? Quarterback. Go. Okay, I'm sitting here trying to figure out two things. One, how in the world did that word get in the balloon? And the other one is, how in the world did you know that Trey was an airhead all along and this was just now a confirmation <laughs> wow. of it? Pretty amazing. Yeah, pretty amazing. I know you're not going to tell us how you did that. No, uh, I can't do that. Against but, the code, as they say. But it is so fascinating to me. You've got to understand, I love comedians and I love magicians, and you're both of them. Oh, well. So I'm, I'm, welcome. We're thank so you. glad you're Pleasure here, Dana. Thank you. be here, Governor. Thank you. Now, there is a story, Dana, that you got into the business with the help of a parrot. Yes. I've I... got to know how that. Aside from the psychic balloon, I yeah. have a psychic parrot. That a I psychic work with. parrot. Yeah, Luigi the psychic parrot. All right, and maybe, uh, maybe next time I'll bring him with me. You should. Yeah. You take him with you most of the time when you travel? Yes, he travels with me quite a bit. We uh, travel. We've been all over the world. Well, actually, he pretty much stays in the continental U.S. because outside. Oh, of that's the right. US, I would never let him back it's in. It's a little more. It's a little bit more difficult. Does Luigi ever get you in trouble? Yeah. Yeah. He. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was flying out of uh, Columbus, Ohio one mm -hmm. time during the winter time, and uh, I, I had to fly back on an airline that wouldn't allow uh, uh, birds on the plane. <laughs> so I had to get home. This is a long time ago. They let, they let you do it now. Yeah. But, um, Just tell them it's a comfort animal. And right, they, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, they didn't have that back yeah. then. So, uh, one, so what I was wearing a trench coat was during the winter time, and I thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put it in my pocket. He had big pockets, and he's little, you know, and I'll just, and then so I go in to check in, I'm walking through the line, and I get up to the front table, and, uh, and I said, he goes, one bag to check in? I said, one bag, and then he says, you want to check in the parrot? And I'm like, <laughs> I, was, uh, I was thinking, what, did you see my show last night? Yeah. And I'm, so I play it dumb, and I go, what parrot? And I didn't know it. But Luigi crawled out of my pocket, up my back, and oh was sitting right here. <laughs> and I'm saying, what parrot? <laughs> and then he says, the one on your shoulder? Uh. <laughs> and I went, oh, him. <laughs> and I, I had to think quick, and I said, no, he's just here to see me off. 
<laughs> this has got to be a very challenging time. I mean, the COVID virus has shut all personal appearances down for the most part. So what what are you able to do? I'm working on a Zoom show right now. Okay. That seems to be like the new thing. So I set up a Zoom studio in my house. Yeah. And uh, and I you do magic shows for the corporations and all that. They're all switching over to having like a Zoom meeting. And uh, it, I didn't, I held off on it for a while. I just didn't think it was gonna work, you know. Uh, you know, I thought everything would get back to normal pretty quick. Yeah. But you know, it's going a little slower than I thought. So I, uh, I built the studio and uh, it's actually kind of fun. That's and great. It's more fun than I thought it would be. And yeah. you don't have to go through the airport with a parrot on your shoulder. No, I, I could do the act in my underwear, <laughs> just, you know, just this. <laughs> And well, no you know, pants. You know, that's kind of what Trey normally does yes. tonight because he had to come out from <laughs> behind there. Yeah. Right. We had to make him wear pants. We told him that that was just not going to work tonight right. because he was going to be the volunteer. <laughs> well, he had to come out, yeah. Yeah. So, all right. Well, like I say, I love magic and I love comedy. You do both, and we are thrilled that you came to be with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Governor. For coming to be here. All right. Thank you. Dana Daniels. Now, Keith Bilbrey, I want you to tell the viewers where they can see more of the amazing Dana Daniels. Well, I'd be glad to. Visit DanaDaniels.com for hilarious videos with Dana and his pal Luigi, the psychic parrot. That's where you can book Dana for your event and even get his DVD, It's a Bird, featuring his own amazing magic, plus tricks you can learn. And if you'd like more laughs, take a, like a wedding you have to take a test for, a woman stuck in a trash can, and a person who washed all their cash and destroyed it in the laundry. Join me after the show on Huckabee.tv for In Case You Missed It. Next, helping students from going hungry. And from the I Am Second campaign, John Humphrey. Then later, the life and music of Glenn Campbell with his daughter, Debbie Campbell, on Huckabee. Go to MikeHuckabee.com and sign up for his free newsletter. And follow at GovMikeHuckabee on Twitter. And welcome back. How about a big hand of applause for Trey Corley and the Music City Connection tonight? Well, during disasters every day, heroes rise up to help their local communities. Now, tonight's Huck's hero answered that call when her hometown needed it most. And she hasn't stopped for over 30 years. kids started back in 1989 when Barbara Maines saw that people needed something after Hurricane Hugo came through here, came blasting through. She said, I'm going to go out into the country and see if people need help. So she grabbed her sister and a friend and they went out, only to find that a lot of children were out there hungry, actually dump, dumpster dumping. So she said, something's got to be done about this. And that's how she started it. They started with like 200 children. And we're over to 2,500 children every week that we feed. We try to clothe them at the beginning of school. They also get a backpack. And we're servicing 39 schools in the area. If a child comes to school with no shoes on and an outfit that just is not appropriate, we'll give them five days worth of uh, clothing, a coat, 
shoes just to be sure that they can blend in with their peers so they can feel good. People used to say to me, aren't you tired by now? Don't you want to do something else? And I said, that would be like leaving my grandchildren in a supermarket in the buggy in the parking lot and leaving them. Be the same thing. This is what I'm supposed to do. With me tonight is the founder of Help for Kids, Barb Maines. Barb, welcome. We're happy to have you here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It is so cool what you've been doing, and you've been doing it for 30 years, which mm -hmm. I find just incredible. I'm sure there were times when uh, you, you thought, how long can I keep doing this? But you, you just seem to be wanting to continue and never stop. I do. Every birthday, I ask God for 20 more years. <laughs> <laughs> well, I hope he gives you even more than that. I do, too. You know, I learned something about you, that you have watched every single episode of this show yeah. since we started. Yeah. That alone makes me love you very much, even thank if you, you didn't do all this cool <laughs> stuff. But yeah. let's go back to the beginning of Help for Kids. Mm -hmm. Hurricane Hugo hit South Carolina, over where you live near Myrtle Beach. Mm -hmm. I know that area very, very well. And uh, th there was a lot that people were struggling with. What made you think, okay, I'm gonna help people, and how did the idea come about? Well. A couple of friends, my sister and I, and a couple of friends, our houses didn't get damaged. Mm. We were right in Garden City, so we decided we'd go out and do something. Well, what we didn't realize, I'd been there for 10 years, but what we didn't realize that Myrtle Beach is beautiful and that, but within 10 miles outside of Myrtle Beach, it was like a third world country. And there were a lot of people, and they were oh, devastated. Their homes were destroyed. They didn't have anything to lose, but they'd lost everything they had. That's a powerful way to say it. Nothing to lose, but they lost, they lost the, everything they yeah. didn't have. One of the things you've done is uh, put backpacks for children. Mm -hmm. Explain how that works for these kids. Okay, they get breakfast and lunch at school, Monday through Friday. They live for school. They get their food there. They get their heat and air. They get their socialization. They get everything at school. So when they go home from Friday to Monday, some of them are not eating till fr from Friday to Monday. Yeah. So we started making the, the backpacks with food, enough for Saturday and Sunday, and started taking it home with them. All of a sudden, the teachers are telling us they're not coming in on Monday morning like cranky and mean. And it just works. And you also do things like school supplies. You we know, do. A lot everything of parents, they need to, yeah. to go to school, everything. People, Shoes, book bag, everything. You know, COVID has impacted education. A lot of yes. kids have not been mm -hmm. in school since... Uh, March. Mm -hmm. March. What 16th. happens to those kids when they can't get to school? Well, we started on March 16th, as soon as the school shut down. They said, well, we're going to have food at school. They can come get it. They can't come get it. They yeah. live on dirt roads. They don't have any cars. So we started a delivery service. And since March 16th, we've delivered every week to over 700 families. The regular bags we give for the weekends. Wonderful. And groceries. God bless you. You know, for 30 years, there are a lot of kids. Some of them now are grown. They have their own families. Mm -hmm. Have you ever had a kid come back to a you and run into? A lot of kids come back, yeah. I, that, that, to me, has got to be one of the most gratifying. It things. is. And we've sent kids to college. We follow them all the way to college. Mm -hmm. We tell them when they're, you know. And we have kids volunteering now that we sent to college. That is a beautiful yeah. story. Yeah. Barb, 
I'm so glad that you are here. I'm even more glad that for 30 years you've been doing what you're doing, and uh, you deserve to be Huck's hero. You deserve Thank to you. be everybody's <laughs> hero. Thank God you. God bless you. Thank you. Thank Bard Mans. Yeah. Thank you. Well, Keith Bilbrey is standing by to tell us how we can help out and stay up to date on everything Help for Kids. Keith? Well, to find out more and help support the cause, visit helpforkidssc.org and follow Help for Kids on Facebook. Just search Help for Kids. Next, I am seconds John Humphrey, then the life and music of Glenn Campbell with his daughter, Debbie Campbell. More Huckabee is on the way. We are so blessed in America that we never give clean water a second thought. But in much of the world, it's the key to not just the health of children and adults, but to their very survival. I'd like to encourage you to call Samaritan's Purse right now or visit their website and give a single but important gift to help provide clean, life-giving water to someone in another land who is desperate for it. I want to say thank you for making a difference all in the name of Jesus. Well, this year marks the 12th anniversary. Yeah, give Samaritan's Purse a hand. They are a fantastic organization. They really are. My wife and I give to them regularly. My wife is a volunteer with them because we believe in what they do and they do it well. Well, this year does mark the 12th anniversary of an incredible movement called I Am Second. It's grown to reach millions of people in 230 countries all over the world. I want to give you just a quick example of I Am Second. My wife is a bit of a wallflower. I like safety. I like knowing what's coming. I would have been the guy on horseback riding off into the wilderness. Fear and failure doesn't even cross his mind. And Joe could not be more opposite than that. If God is involved, safe isn't necessarily the end goal. You know, we've been, as a world sees it, blessed with a lot of things and doing what we love to do and money and fame. But there is no true happiness in the things that everyone sees that should be great with us, apart from a real relationship with, with God and with Jesus. We're not perfect. We don't have a perfect marriage. We don't have, but we have that one thing in our faith. And that's why we're here is to glorify God with what we've been given. And hopefully we point people to the answer. That's what we want to be. Would you please welcome the vice president of I Am Second and producer of many of its films, John Humphrey. John, good to have you here. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. When you say I am second, I mean, that means somebody else is first. So let's talk <laughs> about who's first and how does this play out? Sure. Well, the starting point is putting Christ first in your life and to follow the leadership and commands that Christ gives to us. But there's a second part to that. And that's putting others ahead of yourself as well and the needs of others and the concerns for those people. You've had an amazing array of people that have done these uh, very honest and transparent videos. Who are some of the people that we would all know and recognize that have done these kind of videos? I mean, we just saw Carrie Underwood and Mike Fisher, the uh, great hockey player. Uh, Carrie Underwood, of course, the singer. 
and uh, Chip and Joanna Gaines, but you've had a lot of folks. How many? Sure, we've had, uh, we, we've done about 140 of those white chair films is yeah. what we call them, the signature look of someone sitting in a white chair. But we've done other films as well, including a, a documentary that's running on Showtime right now called Loud Crazy Love, which is the story of Brian Head Welch from Corn. But, uh, Who has been on our show. Absolutely. One of our favorite guests. We love having him. He was wonderful. Right. But, uh, but we've had certainly uh, sports stars like Albert Pujols and Clayton Kershaw, entertainers like Danny Gokey or Tori Kelly, mm. um, other entertainers uh, that you may remember like Kathy Lee Gifford, uh, Kathy Ireland, the supermodel, yeah. businesswoman. So it really is all walks of life from the celebrity, also to those that are not so recognizable, the people down the street that are dealing with topics that you and I run into every single day. There's one in particular. I, I want to show a clip from it because I think it's one of the most powerful things that I've seen. You guys have a video called Unlikely Friends. It features Michael, a former neo-Nazi, and his African-American probation officer, Tiffany. Let me show our viewers a quick part of that powerful video. You put forth more of an effort than anybody I've had in my life that actually tried to help me. Why? Michael, I'm going to tell you how the Lord feels about you. He sees you as, or he saw you as a young, a young boy. And he's seen you grow into a man. He wants you to spread his word of love, acceptance, forgiveness. And you question how you can be forgiven. He forgives no matter how bad our sins are. You have to forgive yourself. John, that is such a powerful interaction. You know, everybody today talks about racism and racial reconciliation and how to fix it. We just saw how to fix it. Bring people to Christ. I mean, here's a neo-Nazi, for heaven's sakes, a guy that hated people like Tiffany. What's the backstory with those well, guys? Well, we, we read about their story. Yeah. And it hadn't been publicized at all. Um, but we read about it in a small, small town newspaper, and then we were able to go ahead and bring them together. And they had never really done this type of, uh, of interview before. And what's been amazing to see is not only to, uh, for Michael to talk about how he came to Christ, but what he's been doing in the, in the year since we published that story. And he has been taking his story to the masses, he's invited to conferences, and really serving as an example for other people. It is a great testimony of God's grace and his transforming power. I Am Second is having an impact on people when they see these videos. Did you envision when this all started 12 years ago that you would have hundreds of the videos and millions of people all over the world would see them? You know, we started in 2008 uh, with an outreach to the Dallas-Fort Worth area with 15 films really to show people authentic Christianity and connect them with local churches. And within three weeks, it went viral, went around the world, and we suddenly found we were just trying to keep up. And that's what we've been doing ever since, trying to, to go ahead and meet the need that people have for true examples of authentic faith. Well, keep it up, John, because it's a wonderful way to get a great message out and to introduce all of us to a side of people that we might know 
but we might not really know That's until we see their stories. Right. Thank you for being here. Well, John Humphrey. Appreciate it. Now, Keith, I bet our viewers want to see more great testimonies from I in Second and hear their life-changing stories. Why don't you tell them how they can do that? Sure will. Just head to IamSecond.com. You'll find videos by your favorite celebrities and people from all walks of life, plus books, merchandise, and more. You can lend your support and even share your own story, all at IamSecond.com. Next, we honor music legend Glenn Campbell with his daughter, Debbie Campbell, here on Huckabee. Welcome back. Three years ago today, Glenn Campbell passed away at the age of 81 from Alzheimer's. He was beloved worldwide, a true superstar of music, film, and television. Tonight, we want to take time to honor Glenn's life in music thanks to his daughter. Please welcome Debbie Campbell. Debbie, Thank welcome. You, Glenn Campbell was born and raised in Delight, Arkansas, actually a suburb of Delight, right. Billstown, right. not that far from where I grew up, down in southwest corner of the state. Arkansas always loved and treasured your father because he made us all look pretty good. You know, he was just <laughs> such an incredible performer. You got to work with him for a number of years, singing in his shows. In 1985, I moved to Phoenix my um, ex-husband was in the military mm -hmm. and he got out and I wanted my kids to be around a grandparent and my mom and stepdad were still over in Germany. Okay. So we moved to Phoenix and so they could, you know, get to know their grandpa. And uh, in 1987, dad was singing at the state fair in Phoenix and I said, hey dad, can I sing with you? He goes, sure. And I'm like, oh my gosh. I said, <laughs> yes. And I'm like, shake it, you know. And, uh, and so I sang with them and he loved it. And so from then on, for the next 25 years, I ended up on the road with him. We traveled all over you know, England, Scotland, Ireland, Wales, Australia, New Zealand. I mean, I went everywhere with him, and we were like, you know, our rooms adjoined in the hotel room, so he'd come in and turn my channel if he didn't like what I was watching or whatever, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I just, I took care of him. I was like his caretaker on the road, and I was his duet partner on stage, and... But that's, but you did sing with him all those years. Oh, yeah, for, yeah, we yeah. loved it, yeah. You know, I don't think a lot of people, Debbie, understood that he was not just a, a great singer and performer. He was one of the greatest studio musician, guitar Absolutely. players, session players in LA yep. for a number of years. He played with Frank Sinatra. He played with, he toured with the Beach Boys, right. but he played with Sonny and Cher and a lot of the records Sammy that we Davis all listen Jr. to. Sammy Davis Jr., I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. And he played on all those records and- Jeannie Seeley, he yeah. played on, I mean, yeah, it's just amazing all the artists that dad has, his records has been. Yeah, his yeah. agility on the guitar was just legendary. Right. now. When he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, that had to have been a shocking blow to the whole family, but he continued to perform. Right. Uh, and he was so transparent about what he was facing. Right. How did he deal with even just coping with that and yet going out there and loving his fans and giving them all of the Glenn Campbell he could? Dad's fans are the most amazing fans. I'm sure every entertainer can say that, you know. Yeah. 
but um, they were they really are. I mean, in fact, I know so many of them as my friends now because I was on the road with them so much that they would come to every show. I mean, they would come to Branson, and I would I would like, how you guys do this? You rent a car, you get a hotel, you're there two weeks straight in the front row, and you buy tickets to every show. I go, I have yeah. to work two jobs to make ends <laughs> meet. How are you guys doing this? You know, and uh, but they're just amazing, and Dad loved them. And if they, and if he knew they were coming and they missed a show, he's like. Honey, we need to call and find out what happened to Lenny or, you know, why aren't they here I mean, he tonight? had that kind of connection yes, with the absolutely, fans. absolutely, yeah. Um, one funny story is uh, Colin Ray had me come and sing with him um, in Ohio. And so, of course, I had to get in touch with the Ohio fans. Yeah. And um, one night when I was getting ready for the show, says like, hey, you want to wear one of your dad's shirts on stage? And I go, how in the world do you have one of my dad's shirts? He goes, well, <laughs> you know, one time I was with your dad and he goes, hey, Seth, what's your, well, your address? And I just... He said he sent me a box of clothes. And I'm like, oh, everybody's got dad's clothes but me. You know, they got Jack. I mean, he would give you the shirt off his back. He just loved his fans so But you brought something out here on the stage. We're going to take I a look did. at this. Tell us about the outfit that we're looking at over there. Well, this outfit is dad's original rhinestone cowboy outfit. And when he was done with it, isn't that awesome? That's so pretty awesome. cool. Yeah. Um, Dad used it in the video, the Rhinestone Cowboy video, and for the album shoot, of course, and then he was done with it. It's like, I don't need this anymore. Give it back to Nudie. And Nudie is, you know, where Manuel originally started working was at Nudie's. And uh, so they gave it back to Nudie, and then, you know, the fans, they got to find all this, you know, if you want to know something about an art, you're, <laughs> when I want to know something about Dad, I just go to the fans, you know, because <laughs> they, they know, every, they're like a, <laughs> yeah. a bachelor degree in Glen Campbell, you know, and a lot of them have collected stuff. I mean, I was busy being a kid back then, and they were all out there collecting all my dad's stuff. And so Vicki Johnson, um, she's a very avid fan of Dad's, and she's a dear friend of mine now her and her husband, Bud, but she tracked that thing down. 27 years it took her. Oh. She went every thrift shop through Hollywood, anywhere that she was on the road, because she was a barrel racer, so they would go to all these different towns, and she'd go to every place that she possibly could think that she could find that she kept. It was a running joke with her and dad. She was going to find that rhinestone cowboy outfit. Well, she found it. I'm so grateful that you brought it here. Yeah, so she's now, let I, me take I, it. Um, to shows because we're trying to, yeah. you know, I take it to shows and people give donations. We're trying to, my family and I in Arkansas, we're trying to raise money to get a bronze statue of dad at the cemetery. That would be great. Yeah, I mean, he really Just needs it. do me one favor. Don't let Keith try that on. Uh, I know he's been wanting to, and we've <laughs> got to keep him away from it. So don't let that happen. Right. But I tell you what we are going to do. We're not going to let you come and not sing. You've been singing with your dad. Now you're going to sing some of his great songs. We couldn't do them all because we'd be here for weeks. Right. Uh, but we're delighted that you're oh, here, I'm Debbie. I'm so happy that you asked it's me. It's so much fun just so having much, you here. I can't here. believe it just fell on the anniversary of the third well, year of Dad's You know, death. providential right. that you happen to be here that weekend. All right. As Debbie gets ready to sing with us, Keith is going to tell everyone how they can learn more about Debbie and her music, which you're going to want after you hear her sing. I think you're right. That outfit would look great on me. You can find Debbie's book, Life with My Father, Glenn Campbell, and her music album at DebbieCampbellMusic.com. And that's Debbie spelled with Y at the end. Coming up, Debbie Campbell performs Glenn Campbell's hit, Try a Little Kindness. How come he's back in 60 seconds?
after the show, be sure to go to Huckabee.tv for an encore performance by Debbie Campbell singing her father's classic, By the Time I Get to Phoenix. Now, performing with Trey Corley and the Music City Connection with Mike on bass, here's Debbie Campbell. Oh, 